Welcome once again to our series, A Concise Guide to Primitive Godliness. This morning we want to look at one of the most fundamental, foundational concepts in the Christian life. We want to talk about sin. The devil doesn't want us to understand sin, because the devil doesn't want us to understand his, uh, his arsenal against us. But it's important that we do. There are some things about this concept that are critical for our understanding of the Christian life and how it works in practical terms. So we're going to look at that this morning. Before we begin, let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that in your word you teach us so many wonderful things. That you help us to understand the Christian life. That you help us understand what it means to follow you. And Father, we pray that as we look into your word this morning, that you will be the, uh, the, our guide, that you will open up our hearts and our minds and teach us, teach us the things that you want us to know, and show us how we can apply these things in practical ways in our own life. We pray for these things. We thank you so much for them. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> Have you ever thought about the question, how does a Christian sin? It's an interesting question, a basic question, and actually a very important question. How does a Christian sin? In other words, what is normal as Christians in terms of sin? If I have been crucified in Christ, and it's no longer I who lives, but Christ lives in me, then does Christ sin in me? How should we as Christians, as followers, as wholly surrendered followers of Christ, how should we relate to this concept of sin, and what is it going to look like? in practical terms in our life? This is an important question. In fact, we are told that the nature and the importance of the law of God have been to a great extent lost sight of. A wrong conception of the character, the perpetuity, and the obligation of the divine law has led to errors in relation to what? Conversion and sanctification, and has resulted in lowering the standard of piety in the church. Here, we are told, is to be found the secret of the lack of the spirit and the power of God in the revivals of our time. Wow, this is an incredibly important topic, that we understand the character, the obligation, and the perpetuity of God's divine law. So, how does a Christian sin? Where do you even begin to <laughs> explore a question like that? In fact, I propose that this question, how does a Christian sin, is so difficult that it would be easier for us to start with an easier question. Okay? Let's start with an easier question. Let's start with the question, does a Christian sin? This question is easier in many ways. For example, it only has two answers. It's either yes or no. And I can imagine that most of us think that we know from the beginning what that answer is going to be. Does a Christian sin? So let's look at the scriptures and see if we can find out some information about this particular question, does a Christian sin? We start off with Ecclesiastes, the, uh, Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, and he says, there is not a righteous man on earth who does what is right and never sins. I mean, that's pretty clear. I don't know if you can get much clearer than that. This is Solomon the wisest man who ever lived, he's saying, there is not a righteous man on earth who does what is right and never sins. And then, of course, we can go to the psalmist, Solomon's father. He says, if you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? And it's true. Who can stand without iniquity before the Almighty God? So these passages are very clear that, yes, people sin, and even Christians sin. 
Everyone sins. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. So should we stop here or should we keep on going? Well, let's keep looking at the Bible and see if we can find out more about this concept of does a Christian sin? Paul tells us that no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. So according to Paul, we don't actually have to sin. There's always a way out. And by God's grace, we can take that way out. But does that really happen in real life? I mean, is that really practical or is that just theory? <clears throat> John tells us, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. This is Jesus talking. Everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. So are we slaves of sin? Well, not according to Paul. Paul tells us that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so we would no longer be slaves to sin. In other words, the good news of the gospel is that we don't have to be slaves to sin. So... It seems in these passages that there, there's something about this sin thing we're not necessarily understanding because everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin, and those who are crucified in Christ are no longer slaves of sin. So how can that possibly be? And then Peter comes along and he says, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. This suffering in the flesh, this is talking about surrender. This is talking about crucifixion in Jesus. So, no, holy surrender Christians do not sin. According to Jesus and Paul and Peter, they don't. So, how are you doing? Are you understanding this concept better? We've seen several verses that say, yes, everybody sins. Obviously, everybody sins. And we've seen several verses which seem to say that, that when we are crucified in Christ, God gives us victory over sin. We're no longer slaves to sin. So how are we doing? Let's look at some more verses here. Uh, John, if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. Wow, that's pretty clear also. <laughs> Let's not deceive ourselves, right? And, and the same apostle John says this, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So let's, my friends, not deceive ourselves, and let's not call God a liar. Let's recognize that we have sin, right? The Bible clearly says that we have sin, and that if we say that we don't have sin, we make him a liar and deceive ourselves. But this same Apostle John also writes this, Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he's born of God. Okay, John was just telling us that everyone sins, and if we say we don't have sin, we are deceiving ourselves and calling God a liar. And now he's saying that no one who is born of God practices sin. And this same apostle, John, makes the explosive statement, no one who abides in him sins, no one who sins has seen him or knows him. You know, this question, <laughs> does a Christian sin, seems to be a little bit more difficult than we had originally thought. Does a Christian sin? We've looked at several passages which very clearly say that everyone sins, even fully surrendered Christians. But we've looked at several passages which show that those who are crucified in Christ, who have crucified the flesh, who have suffered in the flesh, are actually free from this thing called sin. So how can we resolve this seeming contradiction? 
Usually when I see a contradiction or what seems to be a contradiction in Scripture, it's, it's because I'm misunderstanding something fundamental. And I think that might be the case in this, uh, this case also. If I told you, for example, that um, flowers grow best in sunshine, and then the next minute I told you, flowers grow best in shade, what would you say to me? Well, you'd say either I'm going crazy or there's at least two types of flowers, right? And that's the way it is. There are at least two types of flowers. There are flowers that grow uh, best in sunshine. They have to have direct sunshine to grow. And there are flowers that need to be in the shade. They grow best in the shade. So there's actually the same kind of a concept with sin. If we see the seeming contradiction in Scripture, it's because there's at least two different types of sin. And what we want to do this morning is we want to look at these different types of sin and see how they relate to our Christian life. Perhaps one of the best places to go to find out about the different types of sin is the Old Testament sanctuary service. In this service, we can learn about four different types of sin, and they can be summarized in this table. So we have the faithful people on the left, and then we have the unfaithful people on the left on the bottom. Then we have unintentional sin uh, on the top, and an intentional sin on the right. The first type of sin that we can learn about from the sanctuary is the faithful person who commits an unintentional sin. We learn about this in Leviticus chapter 4, and the sacrifice for this type of sin is given. It's a female goat. The Bible says, now if any one of the common people sins unintentionally in doing any of the things which the Lord has commanded not to be done, and becomes guilty, if his sin which he has committed is made known to him, then he shall bring for his offering a goat, a female without defect, for his sin which he has committed. So, this concept of unintentional sin is throughout the Old Testament. If a person sins unintentionally, when a leader sins unintentionally, if a person acts unfaithfully and sins unintentionally, if, if one person sins unintentionally, uh, if a, if a uh, man kills another person unintentionally, even Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. This, this concept of unintentional sin is throughout Scripture. So that's the first type of sin, the faithful person who sins unintentionally. The second type of sin that we learn about in the, in the Old Testament sanctuary services is the unfaithful person who sins unintentionally and then wants to repent. Okay? We learn about this type of sin in, Le in Leviticus chapter 5, and notice that the sacrifice for this type of sin is a ram. If a person acts unfaithfully and sins unintentionally against the Lord's holy things, then he shall bring his guilt offering to the Lord, a ram without defect, from the flock. So that is the, that is the unfaithful person committing an unintentional sin. And the third type of sin that we see in this sanctuary service is the unfaithful person who commits the intentional sin. This person uh, is described in Leviticus chapter 6, and notice that the sacrifice is even more. It is both restitution for his sin and the ram. In each of these different cases that we're looking at, the sacrifice has been getting larger and larger and more expensive. Go to chapter 6. Let's look at it. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, When a person sins and acts unfaithfully against the Lord and deceives his companion in regard to a deposit or security entrusted to him, or through robbery, or if he has, been ex has extorted from his companion, or has found what was lost and lied about it and sworn falsely, so that he sins in regard to any one of these things that a man may do. This is describing a person who is unfaithful to God and committing an intentional sin, robbing, extorting, deceiving, swearing falsely. <clears throat> and the uh, sacrifice, of course, is restitution for that sin and a ram. So, we've looked so far very quickly 
at the sanctuary services and what they say about three different types of sin committed by faithful and unfaithful people, unintentionally and intentional. So what do you think the fourth type of sin is that we're going to talk about? It is intentional defiant sin. Intentional defiant sin is openly defiant sin against something that God has commanded. And we see, we see this type of sin in uh, Numbers chapter 15. And my friends, there's no sacrifice for this sin. This is the unpardonable sin. Look at what the Bible says. You shall have one law for him who does anything unintentionally, for him who is native among the sons of Israel, and for the alien who sojourns among them. But the person who does anything defiantly, whether he is native or an alien, that one is blaspheming the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from his people. In fact, uh, with this command, an example is given. A man was going out on Sabbath, and he was gathering wood in open defiance of God's command not to gather wood on the Sabbath. And because of that open defiance, this man was taken, and he was stoned by the children of Israel. There was no sacrifice for that sin. Openly defiant against one of God's commands. So, these are the four types of sin that we learn about in the sanctuary service in the Old Testament. The faithful person who commits an unintentional sin, the unfaithful person who commits an unintentional sin and then repents, the unfaithful person who commits an intentional sin and then wants to repent. Those are the three that we see in the sanctuary. And then we see also in Numbers 15, this intentional, defiant, unpardonable sin. So, uh, what about this little blank in the upper right-hand corner of our table? It's empty. What about the faithful person who commits the intentional sin? My friends, the Bible does not talk about that scenario. Never in Scripture will you find a faithful person who is intentionally sinning against God. In fact, they contradict each other. Faithful means that they're faithful to God. And when you're sinning intentionally, you're unfaithful to Him. When a person commits an intentional sin, if they are surrendered to Jesus, they actually walk out of that surrender relationship and say, Lord, I'm turning my back on you. I know I am. I'm doing it on purpose. I, un I understand what I'm doing. That is an intentional sin, and that will separate us from that surrender relationship. So, these four types of sins can actually be boiled down into two general categories, unintentional sins and intentional sins. And I want to look just uh, for a few minutes at these two different types of sins and see if we can understand them a little bit better. First of all, unintentional sin. The Bible says that all unrighteousness is sin, 1 John 5, 17. And Paul tells us in Romans 3, 10 that there is none righteous, not one. So if you take these two verses together, we see that everyone is a sinner. Clear as day. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is none righteous. So we're all sinners. Easy. All right? In that sense, everyone is a sinner. Even the most holy, surrendered Christian. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? We need to understand that imperfection of character is sin. Did you know that? Imperfection of character is sin. Does anyone here have an imperfect character? Anyone? <laughs> yes, we all do. And yes, because of that, we are sinners. This is unintentional sin. God has given us the power of choice. It is ours to exercise. We cannot change our hearts. We cannot control our thoughts, our impulses, our affections. We cannot make ourselves pure, fit for God's service. See, all these things that we cannot do, but what can we do? She goes on, but we can choose to serve God. We can give Him our will. 
Then He will work in us to will and to do according to His good pleasure. Thus, listen to this, this is incredible. Thus our whole nature will be brought under the control of Christ. There are those who have known the pardoning love of Christ and who really desire to be children of God, yet they realize that their character is imperfect, their life faulty. We shall often have to bow down and weep at the feet of Jesus because of our shortcomings and mistakes, but we are not to be discouraged. This is talking about unintentional sin. Yes, unintentional sin happens, even for the fully surrendered Christian. We will often have to bow down and weep at the feet of Jesus because of our shortcomings and mistakes. So let's look at this unintentional sin and look at three types of unintentional sin. First of all, the mistakes. We do something that we don't realize is wrong until after we do it, and then we say, oh man, what did I do? That was a mistake. This happened with Saul before he became Paul, before his conversion. He was persecuting God's people, sincerely believing that he was doing the right thing, and he was woefully mistaken. So that's one type of unintentional sin, mistakes. Another type of unintentional sin are our shortcomings. We fall short of the mark. We want to be strong in faith, but our faith is still growing. We want to love Jesus with all of our heart and mind and soul and strength, but our love is still growing. These are shortcomings. We fall short of the mark, and there's nothing we can do about it directly. Only God can work those things in our lives through the process of sanctification. The third type of unintentional sin are character flaws. These are things like pride and fear and jealousy and anger. We have no direct control over our character flaws. If I have a pride problem, I can't say to myself, okay, starting right now, I'll never be proud again. That doesn't work. We don't have that power of choice when it comes to our characters. Only God can give us victory over pride. Only God can give us victory over anger. Only God can give us victory over jealousy or any of the other character flaws. Only God can do it, and we have to let Him. So these are the unintentional sins, the mistakes, the shortcomings, the character flaws that are part of what it means to be a human in this fallen world. James tells us something interesting now about intentional sin. Let's turn now and look at intentional sin. James says, therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. And of course, the other, is, uh, the other side of that coin is also true. If you know what's, what's not right and you do it anyway, that's intentional sin. Intentional sin is when you know what you should do and you choose not to do it. Sometimes intentional sins are starkly obvious. Uh, the Ten Commandments, for example, are starkly obvious. Committing adultery, uh, lying, stealing, murdering, those are pretty obvious things. But not all the time are intentional sins really obvious. Sometimes there's some gray areas. For example, when Jesus was talking about the Ten Commandments, he was saying that even being angry with your brother is like murdering. And even looking at a woman lustfully is like committing adultery with her in your mind. So sometimes these intentional sins are not as obvious. Even idolatry can be a subtle sin in our world today. Listen to this. Anything which tends to abate, that means lessen, anything which tends to lessen our love for God or to interfere with the service due Him becomes thereby an idol. Anything in our life which tends to abate our love for God or to interfere with the service due to Him becomes an idol. So yes, we can indulge in idolatry, simply by letting something into our life that interferes with our love relationship with God. So there's five things that we should know about intentional sin. First of all, 
unintentional sins can become intentional sins if we're not careful. Let me give you an example. Uh, let's say that we have a spontaneous prideful thought. And that's a sin. That's a character flaw. Pride is an is a unintentional sin. So we have this, this uh, impulse of pride. At that point, it's un- unintentional. But if we choose, if we choose to take that thought and run with it, if we decide to, to, to act on that prideful thought or to say something prideful based on that thought, then it becomes a choice. James tells us each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when the lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. So unintentional sins, things that we don't want to be intentional, we're not doing it on purpose. They can come impulsively into our minds or our thoughts. And if we act on them, if we choose to act on them, that can become an intentional sin. The second thing we need to know about intentional sin is that willful ignorance of God's will is intentional sin. In other words, we can't hide our heads in the sand and say, I don't want to know God's will because if I do, then I'll I'll be held accountable for it. Those who have an opportunity to hear the truth and yet take no pains to hear or understand it, thinking that if they do not hear, they will not be accountable, will be judged guilty before God, the same as if they had heard and rejected. There will be no excuse for those who choose to go in error when they might understand what is truth. In his sufferings and death, Jesus has made atonement for all things of ignorance. Isn't that a wonderful thought? In his sufferings and death, Jesus has made atonement for all sins of ignorance. But there is no provision made for willful blindness. The third thing that we should know about about intentional sin is that Christ's robe of righteousness does not cover intentional sin. For if we go on sinning willfully, Paul says, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. If we know God's will, and we are acting outside of that will, intentionally, knowledgeably, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. Sin can only be forgiven if it's confessed and repented. So this is an important thing to remember. Christ's robe of righteousness does not cover intentional sin. So while God can be just and yet justify the sinner through the merits of Christ, no man can cover his soul with the garments of Christ's righteousness while practicing known sins or neglecting known duties. God requires the entire surrender of the heart before justification can take place. And in order for man to retain justification, there must be continual obedience through active, living faith that works by love and purifies the soul. So here we have three things that are very important to understand about intentional sin. One, unintentional sins can become intentional if we're not careful. Two, willful ignorance of God's will is intentional sin. And three, Christ's robe of righteousness does not cover intentional sin. The fourth thing that we should know about intentional sin is that there's no such thing as a little sin when it comes to intentional sins. No such thing as a little sin. Any sin that's intentional is a big sin. Chuck Yeager was a test pilot, and one day he was testing this plane. It was an F-86 Sabre. And he was testing it because some other pilots had died recently in this plane because it, it had crashed and they didn't know why. And so he was putting it through his paces, trying to figure out why this, cra- this plane was crashing. And he spent several hours doing it. He did everything he could think of, and the plane was fine. There was no problems. So at the end of his, uh, his test, he decided to um, impress his friends. So he buzzed the lake where they were all there watching, and he, he buzzed this lake really, really close to the, the water, and he turned over 
flipped upside down, and he flew upside down just above the water. And as he did that, his controls locked, and he could no longer control the airplane. Now, most pilots would panic at that point and try to pull up, and that would be the wrong thing to do. He actually pushed the nose down, releasing the stress on the plane, and that unlocked the controls. He was able to flip back over, and he was able to go up to altitude. When he got back up to altitude, 20 to 30,000 feet, he decided he needed to try this again and see if he could reproduce this problem, because this was probably the problem that was causing those pilots to die. He wanted to find out if this could be repeatable. So he did the same thing. He flipped upside down, and as he did, his, his controls locked. And once again, he was able to get out of it by pushing down on the stick. So he went back to base, and he told the engineers there what had happened what his experience was. And so they were looking in, in the, the, the plans and the schematics and looking everywhere they could possibly find to see if there's anything that would cause the controls to lock up when you're having these particular forces being upside down. And they couldn't find anything, but there was one possibility. There was a bolt that if it was put in wrong, it could cause a problem like this. But the plans clearly said to put it in one way, and if they put it in that way at the, at the plant, there would be no problem. So they went to the plant, and they talked to the one guy who was responsible for putting that bolt in. That was part of his job. He was the guy that put that bolt in. And they said, can you show us how you put that bolt in? He said, sure. So he showed them, and it was wrong. It was upside down. And they said, but the plans say that to put it in this way, and you're putting it in this way. And the guy says, yeah, I know, but the plans are wrong. Everybody knows that when you put a bolt in, you have to put it this way. Just a little thing. Just one little bolt. And nobody told that man how many people had died because he wasn't following the plans. My friends, it's the same way in the Christian life. There is no such thing as a little sin. Any intentional known sin is a big sin. It will separate us from God. It will cause catastrophic failures in our Christian experience. The Bible says, lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. As latest in Christians, it's easy for us to say, oh, well, you know, it's just a little thing. And besides, God isn't finished with me yet. That is one of the most insidious statements in all of Christendom. Oh, it's just a little thing. And besides, God isn't finished with me yet. My friends, what we are saying is, we know it's wrong. We want to do it anyway. And it's not that big of a deal. Someday God will give us victory. That's not the way it works. Lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. There can be no chinks in our armor, not even the smallest thing. Every act of life, however small, has its bearing for good or for evil. It is little things that test the character. The commission of a known sin silences the witnessing voice of the Spirit and separates the soul from God. My friends, there is no such thing in the Christian life as a little intentional sin. Intentional sin will destroy us. Intentional sin will open up a crack and the devil will slither in and undo the work that God is trying to do in our life. The fifth thing that we should know about intentional sin, and this is where the good news starts coming in here, the fifth thing we should know is that God can give us consistent victory over intentional sin in our life. Isn't that wonderful? The Bible tells us very clearly and very powerfully that if we let him if we make God king of our life, if he is in total control, we are wholly surrendered to him, that God can give us the power over intentional sin. That is the good news of the gospel. James tells us, submit therefore to God, that's the surrender, resist the devil, and what will happen? He will flee from you. In John we see, we know that no one who is born of God sins, but he who was born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. 
Feeling the terrible power of temptation, the drawing of desire that leads to indulgence, many a man cries in despair, I cannot resist evil. Tell him that he can and that he must. He may have been overcome again and again, but need not be always thus. He is weak in moral power, controlled by the habits of a life of sin. His promises and resolutions are like ropes of sand. The knowledge of his broken promises and forfeited pledges weakens his confidence in his own sincerity and causes him to feel that God cannot accept him or work with his efforts. But he need not despair. That's the good news. Those who put their trust in Christ are not to be enslaved by any hereditary or cultivated habit or tendency. Isn't that incredible? Those who put their trust in Christ are not to be enslaved by any hereditary or cultivated habit or tendency. That's our key phrase this morning. Let's read it out loud together. Those who put their trust in Christ are not to be enslaved by any hereditary or cultivated habit or tendency. Do not think that God will work a miracle to save those weak souls who cherish evil, who practice sin, or that some supernatural element will be brought into their lives, lifting them out of self into a higher sphere where it will be comparatively easy work without any special effort, any special fighting, without any crucifixion of self, because all who dally on Satan's ground for this to be done will perish with the evildoers. Many Christians today, including myself for most of my life, think that it's normal to sin intentionally. They don't realize the distinction between unintentional and intentional sin. They say we're all sinners. We might as well not worry about it too much. And they go on doing whatever they want to do, sinning intentionally and dishonoring God and walking away from that surrendered Christian experience. I once had a friend who on Facebook posted a a post and she said, I have just recently fallen terribly. I... I, uh, I don't know if she went into great detail about what she had done, but she was just telling everybody that she had fallen. And she said this, she made this one statement. She said, but falling is not failing. Falling is not failing. And I thought about that and I said, is that true? Falling is not, yes, it is. Falling is failing. Falling is failing to hold on to Christ. It is failing to, by faith, cling to him and let him give us victory. It is failing to stay in that surrender relationship with Jesus. And during that that Facebook post, she went on to say that she has so many opportunities to praise God because every time she falls, he always picks her up out of the mud. And that's true. No matter how many times we fall, God will be there, willing, able, and eager to pick us out of the mud. That is part of the good news of the gospel. He will always pick us out out, out of the mud if we repent right? But as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, shouldn't we be spending our time glorifying God for keeping us out of the mud in the first place? That's God's promise. That's God's work. That's his power. We should be spending our time praising God for keeping us out of the mud rather than continually letting go of God and falling and needing his help to bring us out of the mud. God is willing and able and eager to keep us out of the mud in the first place. How can the Laodicean church receive the Spirit? Here is to be found the secret of the lack of the Spirit and power of God in the revivals of our time. My friends, what we are talking about is so critically important because if we don't understand sin and how it relates to the Christian life, we can lower the standard of piety in the church and it can affect our conversion and our sanctification and it can keep us from receiving the Holy Spirit and the power of God in the revivals of our time. So, going back to our our question, does a Christian sin? 
we realized that we were asking the wrong question. We have to ask two questions because there's two types of sin. So let's do that now. First question, does a fully surrendered, Christ-focused Christian commit unintentional sin? And the answer is yes, of course. The psalmist says, if you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Yes, we do. Even fully surrendered Christians do con commit unintentional sin. That's very, very uh, clear in Scripture. The second question, question is, does a fully surrendered, Christ-focused Christian commit intentional sin? And that the, clearly, the Bible clearly tells us, no, no one who abides in him sins, no one who sins has seen him or knows him. So those, that, those two questions help us to understand this seemingly simple question, does a Christian sin? And now, with that background, we can go back to our much harder question, how does a Christian sin? And it actually turns out to be fairly easy. We have to, have, we have to realize that this also will have two aspects, right? How does a Christian sin? Does a Christian sin unintentionally? Yes, less and less as Christ sanctifies us. In other words, as we surrender our life to Jesus, He's not only giving us victory over the intentional sins, but He's also working on our unintentional sins. He's working on our character flaws. He's working on, on our mistakes. He's working on our, our um, uh, missing the mark, our inadequacies. So yes, we are growing in Him, and we, we sin unintentionally less and less as a Christian life progresses. How does a Christian sin intentionally? Rarely. And it only happens when we walk out of surrender. When we sin intentionally and we are surrendered to Jesus, we are actually turning our back on Jesus. At least for a time, we are walking out of surrender. And this does happen. It's happened several times in my life. It happened in the life of Moses when he struck the rock. It happened in the life of Elijah when he fled from Jezebel. Yes, the devil does get us sometimes. He entraps us. And even a fully surrendered Christian will fall into that trap and we will walk out of surrender and commit intentional sin. The good news is, is that by God's grace and power, it only needs to happen even rarely, if at all. God is there. He will give us the power. He will keep it from happening if we let him. It should only be something that happens rarely, if at all, because of God's power in our life. Christ is our personal Savior. And if we are his disciples, our wrongdoing will cease unrighteousness will come to an end. To everyone who surrenders fully to God is given the privilege of living without sin in obedience to the law of heaven. How does a Christian sin? When the soul surrenders itself to Christ, a new power takes possession of the new heart. A change is wrought which man can never accomplish for himself. It is a supernatural work, bringing a supernatural element into the human nature. The soul that is yielded to Christ becomes his own fortress, which he holds in a revolted world, and he intends that no authority shall be known in it but his own. A soul thus kept in possession by the heavenly agencies is impregnable to the assaults of Satan. Isn't that good news? The good news clearly taught by Scripture, is that God is powerful enough that if we let Him, He will give us victory over intentional sin. A soul thus kept in possession by the heavenly agencies is impregnable to the assaults of Satan, but unless we do yield ourselves to the control of Christ, we shall be dominated by the wicked one. So we have looked this morning a little bit more at sin and how it relates in practical terms to the Christian life. We have seen that there are two types of sin, unintentional sin and intentional sin. And my friends, it is so important that we understand the distinction between those two types of sin. So that we can understand what a normal Christian life looks like. What is God's normal? Not Laodicean normal, 
But what is God's normal? What does he expect? What can he do? What is he willing and able and eager to do in our life? But if we don't understand this concept, if we go on saying, oh, well, it's just a little thing, and besides God isn't finished with me yet, which is what I did most of my life, then we will continue to live in spiritual poverty, unsurrendered, and Christ will not be Lord and Master of our lives. God is only omnipotent in us when we let him be. But my friends, the good news of the gospel is that we can let him. He can bring us to the point where we are willing and able to surrender our lives fully to him so that he can be almighty God in us and through us. And so that he can give us victory over intentional sin and continually growing victory over unintentional sin. That is God's work to make us more like Christ to get rid of sin in our lives, both the unintentional and the intentional sin. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, thank you so much for your word and for teaching us so many wonderful things. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that we can have victory over sin, only by your power, only through your grace. But thank you for that power and that grace. Thank you that you are willing to be Almighty God in us, that you can control our minds and our hearts and keep us from intentional sin. And thank you, Father, that you are continually working to change our characters and our shortcomings and our mistakes so that we are committing unintentional sin less and less. Father, thank you so much for the power that comes from having the indwelling spirit living, dwelling, working powerfully in us. We thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.